It's the Paddleboo Podcast. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Paddleboo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson. Today's episode is actually a progression project podcast. And if you're not familiar, I have started doing a podcast on a broader scale, on learning, on mastery, uh, things that I'm interested in outside of the paddle surfing world, although a lot of it does correlate back to paddle surfing because that's been a passion of mine for so long. So this episode was recorded for the progression project. And after I posted it up yesterday, I had a lot of emails asking if I would post it also to PaddleWoo. It is relevant because we do talk a lot about paddle surfing. Uh, So I will post it here. But if you have not subscribed yet to the progression project podcast, go to progressionproject.com. And from there, you can link to iTunes or Stitcher. Um, or SoundCloud where that is hosted and you can subscribe so that new episodes will hit you. I have a few more incredible episodes already recorded that are coming out soon. Um, A special forces um, vet who talks about stress response uh, that has a lot to do with surfing as well. Also just dealing with heavy situations and five-time Olympic gold medal winner and recent inductee into the Swimming Hall of Fame, Aaron Pearsall, has recorded, and that is coming out soon. So if you like the Paddleboo podcast, you're going to love the Progression Project podcast. Just go over there and subscribe. I will try to keep you updated here, but it's not going to last forever on Paddleboo. I will continue to do paddle surfing content as well, um, but uh, but check out the Progression Project because you guys are going to love it. All right. The Progression Project. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson. In our last few episodes, we have been exploring the process of learning and mastery. And when I think about learning and mastery, there is no one higher on my list of folks that I'd like to talk to than Anders Ericsson. Anders, with Robert Poole, wrote one of my favorite all-time books, Peak. He has been the leading researcher in what separates the very best performers from the rest, and many of the books on the subject have been written based on that work. He didn't always like the interpretation, so he decided to write Peak, and for that we're grateful. In our discussion, we talk about the practical applications of his research, and my line of questions comes mainly from the way that I use his work both in my practice and coaching of paddle surfing. So without delay, let's dive deep with Anders Ericsson. Dr. Erickson, Anders, thank you very much for being on the Progression Project podcast. How are you today? Doing really well and really excited here about getting a chance to talk to you. As am I. Peak, uh, your work with Robert Poole is one of my favorite books. I've been saying it's my favorite book of the last three years, and I've recommended it on our show multiple times to all of my friends. The majority of them have read it. It was the topic of conversation at dinner last night with some dear friends from Charleston, South Carolina. And so I am incredibly excited to get to get your take on the way that we're using deliberate practice and to uh, hopefully promote the practice of deliberate practice to folks who have not, who have not um, been exposed to it yet. So thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. And uh, this is a topic I love talking about. So this show is called The Progression Project. And the idea is that we are all a work in progress. And there are things that I'm focused on progressing in uh, 
paddle surfing, uh, podcasting, writing. What are you currently focused and passionate about progressing in? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I think what I'm most excited about, and, and this is, you know, part uh, related here to the release of the book, you know, is getting in contact with people who, you know, really found something interesting. So they would send me an email and, and basically tell me or ask me questions about issues of, you know, how they can progress. So, and I think, you know, just looking back my entire career, pretty early on, I realized that there was a trade-off between basically for me to acquire skills and for me to acquire skills so I could study other people who are actually reaching very high levels of performance. And, and I think that's pretty much been sort of my kind of perspective here is, you know, I can learn more by talking to a lot of people who are striving to improve. And hopefully, in some cases, we've been able to really study them experimentally and, and kind of elicit sort of descriptions of what they're thinking about. So we would have a sense here of what's the difference between a top performer when they're engaging in the same activity as somebody who is, you know, an intermediate or, or somebody who's even a beginner. What activity do you think that you have taken uh, most deeply in your life? Well, I, I like to believe that doing research and thinking about the issues here of, and, and I think my initial, when I started in high school, I, I was really interested in my own thinking. And, and I guess I realized pretty early on that when I try to understand people who I admired, who were able to do things that I couldn't do, that there was a discrepancy in, in how they were actually perceiving situations. And, and that led me, you know, to try to understand here, how can we describe the thinking processes of people who are exceptionally good at things, and maybe even most important, how can we kind of find a path that, you know, somebody who is less skilled will be able to refine their performance and eventually get to the point of, you know, the really outstanding performers? All right. So the book peak uh, the main focus of the book is on purposeful and deliberate practice. Can we start out our discussion today for folks who are not familiar with those terms by defining both of those terms, the purposeful practice and deliberate practice? Yeah, and, and I guess I, I find that it's useful to think about when people talk about a practice, you know, amateurs, you know, they go and play soccer with their friends and, 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 and some people go out jogging. Uh, I think what they basically refer to as practice is, is really sort of doing more of the same. It's not like they decide that they're going to try to improve particular aspects of their performance. Uh, and I think that's the reason why, you know, we find consistently that just putting in more hours doing something does not seem to be related to improving your performance. So if you keep jogging at the same pace, you know, for years and years, you're not going to basically suddenly realize that you can actually improve the speed by which you can complete a 5K race or something like that. What we find is that those people who actually reach very high levels of performance, they engage in quite different activities. So, for example, if you want to improve your speed, 
one of the most effective ways seems to be of actually interval training, where you, for short periods of time, maybe you know 100 meters or something, that you run at a maximal pace, and then you stop, rest, and then basically you try to reproduce that maximal speed. That seems to now provide a stimulus for your body that actually changes now uh, certain characteristics of your of, of of your muscles and your you know basically capillaries and and even if you're keeping on training for uh, years, even your heart will actually sort of adapt to the demands here that you put the body under in order to be able to run at very high speeds. So realizing now that we're actually going for science where we look for people who perform at a very high level, and then we try to identify what is it that makes them different. And then once we find the things that seems to be associated with a high level of performance, you know, then we're looking for the kind of training activities that seems to promote those changes, which in turn will lead to higher levels of performance. And in your research, you have found that the best way to elicit those changes is through deliberate practice. Can you define the steps of deliberate practice? You know, I, I think that's great. So, so let me kind of, if we know, if somebody identifies something, you know, like trying to increase your speed that you can sustain uh, when you're long, uh, running a long distance race. So that would be kind of a goal. And then I guess the idea here is, that some people can actually do it by themselves. What we find is that if you work with a coach and teacher who has brought other people to this level that you wanna uh, uh, reach, that's when we talk about deliberate practice because now it's not like you have to discover what you need to do to improve. You can actually you know, learn from other people's experience and in some domains like music and, and, and some sports you know, that's been a very long kind of process of, of accumulating knowledge here about what is effective training and, and what is the appropriate sequencing of training in order to maximize now the ultimate level of performance that you can achieve. So if we're trying now to define deliberate practice, <clears throat> to me, it would basically require that you find that teacher who in some ways have already demonstrated that they're able to guide people who are motivated to the higher level. <clears throat> and they actually, some often by themselves, have actually reached those levels. So then we have the issue that you're coming to this teacher and that teacher can now actually examine what it is they already know how to do. And, and sometimes what they find is that you've acquired some bad habits that in order for you to actually be able to improve all the way here to the top levels, some of the things that you may have to start doing is actually undoing some <clears throat> habitual things that you do. But then essentially the teacher can then identify the appropriate targets that are improvable given what you have already attained and then basically recommend training activities well, you can learn <clears throat> how to monitor yourself so you actually will be able to make these changes uh, you know, without actually having the teacher monitoring you. So it's a sort of a sense, the teacher teaches you, 
to be able to monitor your performance yourself. And you can basically now start making changes when you are actually your own teacher with respect to these particular changes that you want to accomplish. Okay, so very interesting. Something that you touched on at the beginning there is that deliberate practice comes from a teacher. So what I've been embarking on for the last few years is paddle surfing is a very new sport. And I have been bringing down pros, uh, working with the best in the sport to create these best practices and, and models to be able to then coach. So what I have been doing then is not considered deliberate practice because it's, I guess it's more of a discovery. Is there a name for that discovery phase that would then be used to, 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 to start deliberate practice? You know, and, and I think that's what's so exciting here. And I see that in other domains as well, that there isn't sort of this accumulated knowledge like in music uh, where people have been working on this for, you know, several hundred years and have a very good idea here about what the sequencing is. And, and it's a great consensus here about, for a given instrument, how you basically will kind of start uh, acquiring fundamentals and, and then refine and acquire the more complex techniques. But obviously, at some point, that knowledge wasn't available. And you can actually find people who sort of were pioneers and in some ways actually started doing things that people hadn't been doing before. But as they got recognized now as exceptional performers, you know, people were trying to learn here, what is it that they were doing that actually seemed to give them, you know, the ability here to perform at a much higher level than the majority of people. So what you're kind of doing, I think you're, you know, pioneer here, really trying to, uh, you know, extract and, and identify the kinds of abilities that these individuals have that other people don't have. And also, what is it that they we're doing in terms of training to actually be able to develop these uh, uh, kind of characteristics. And I think what I find very interesting and something that we emphasize in the book, this idea of mental representation, basically your ability to kind of monitor what you are doing in a way that actually provides you with internalized feedback loop. Uh, I've talked to a lot of swim coaches, and they basically talk about that the very best swimmers, you know, they seem to be able to monitor their body in a way to really minimize now the friction and, and maximize, you know, the power that they can transfer into the water so they can actually increase their actual speed of swimming. It's interesting that you mentioned swimmers because I had... Um, Aaron Pearsall, I uh, just inducted into the Hall of Fame for swimming. He holds the world record in backstroke currently. Uh, we were having breakfast the other day. He, the, I live in Costa Rica. He comes down all the time. His family has a, ho a home here. And so we surf together. And we were talking, we were having this mental representation uh, conversation. And he was saying that throughout his career, uh, it happened four or five times where he would show up at a pool and he would see a swimmer that just had something that was going to propel them to be great in swimming. And I was thinking about that in the context of mental representations and the database 
of those those representations that you'd have to have to be able to that fast pick out the swimmer who has it. Um, and, and I really want to jump into here the mental representation conversation because this is where I spend a lot of my time thinking about how mental representations can help in coaching and the different areas uh, of mental representations. Can you define a mental representation before we start that conversation? So, so it, it's a little bit difficult because depending on what particular domain, what that kind of mental representations allow you to do is sort of different. Um, I would say that most of our advanced knowledge actually comes from studying chess masters. So, so basically when you have a chess position, you know, an amateur player, you know, would basically be able to see here how they can, you know, take another piece or something like that. Uh, so they actually have, you know, f very focused uh, extraction here of what they think is relevant information. When you have a chess master looking at the same position, they see a lot more complex relationship between the pieces and they can actually close their eyes so they don't really have to see the chessboard. They can actually now mentally making manipulations on their representation of the chess position. So they can basically explore here, you know, if I make this move, what would be the best counter move that my opponent could make? And if he does that, you know, what do I do? And during that kind of exploration, the, the really best chess players are sort of just discovering aspects of the position that would then allow them to actually select what uh, one can basically with, you know, post hoc analysis show was the best move. So, so this ability here of, of mentally either, you know, select the best move or like in many dynamic sports, being able to kind of see a little bit further in the future so you actually will be able to react not to what's happening this moment, but actually what might happen, you know, a second from now or something like that. So when I think about mental representations, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, I see there to be two different distinct types of representations. And I think what you were talking about there, I would classify that as like a decision representation where because of past experiences you have an idea probably unconsciously as you're reacting within sport of what is the proper move and then there's also I, I call them skill representations where if you think about like a tennis forehand the ideal of what is a perfect forehand and thinking about paddle surfing one of the things I've really been focused on here in the last year is to pick out the best representations for different surfing types so that you can pair surfer, you know, uh, aspiring surfer to the turn that they should be doing given their body type and giving, given their, their skill level. So the next rung up, and I use that as a representation to get to that skill and something that they can hold in their mind. But how does that differ from the more uh, dynamic decision representation are those are those the same things am i flawed here in the way that i'm looking at representations you know i would argue that that they're different uh kind of types of representation so just to give an example that i like for a musician who is preparing a music piece for 
you know, performance maybe in a couple of months. What they tend to do is to actually listen to all sorts of other people's interpretations and then try to form an image of what they want to do here that might be unique. And then once they have an idea of what they want to achieve, then they start implementing that. So they kind of have a representation that takes what they're imaging and now tries to actually execute that, say, on the piano. And then there's another representation that basically allows them to listen to the sound that they're producing. And only by having these connected representations will you actually have a feedback loop that would allow them over months to basically get as close to what they were able to image. And I would say that when you're looking at somebody else, uh, you're basically having a kind of a representation a little bit similar to a diver who you know, makes their dive and then they get feedback about what they're doing. And they would often take a look here at the video so they actually will be able to see because ultimately, you know, what they're going to be evaluated on is not how they feel about their dive, but basically how the judges perceived it. And I think, you know, in some ways, all these different mental structures that permit somebody to do that kind of evaluation. And, and now then the problem is often, how do you basically get feedback about your correctness in making certain types of assessments? Now, obviously, if you're recommending for uh, somebody to do something that is different from what they're doing, and then a week or a month later, you find that this individual cannot perform according to whatever criteria you set up here for successful performance better, you know, that would be a validation loop. But those loops, you know, are, are a little bit long, so it, it's kind of hard to uh, evaluate them. So sometimes in chess, if you can get feedback on what was the best move for this position immediately, if you get now knowledge here that you were selecting a move that was not the best move, now you can actually go back to the process that you used to try to find the best move and see what you actually need to make changes. So next time when you encounter the same or a similar position, that you will actually now be able to uh, select the best move that's available. So one way that I have used your work uh, directly in the coaching that I do is we have shortened. So day one, when I work with a client, we or a group, um, we go to a, a, a wave that's very easy to ride. It's very close to shore. And I do what I call micro sessions. And the idea here is to shorten the feedback loop, to shorten the time to feedback. And so we'll go out, surf. Generally, a surf session is two to three hours. We condense that to 15 minutes. We go out, have video camera on the beach, um, surf for 15 minutes, immediately come back in and critique core uh, skills and training. And through that process, and this is beautiful, um, through that process, we have been able to ramp learning time for some of the core basic skills that you need to have from three to four days really down to that first session. Um, so it's, it's been a huge correlation between deliberate practice and skills increase. And part of what's happening there, and, and I never really put it together until I read your work, is that 
through video, through being able to do something and then see it, you're able to understand feeling and versus what something is actually looking like. And in the surfing world, it's very difficult. Like if you take a surfer who's been surfing his whole life and you, he's never seen himself on video and then he sees himself on video, there's a, it's a massively humbling moment because everyone believes that they're much better than they are. And I believe that through that process of teaching uh, surfers, and this is my world, I'm sure it works in all disciplines, but teaching um, athletes to to be able to understand feeling and doing is is a very direct way to then solidify a mental representation of what's actually happening. Do you think that's what's going on there? I, I think that's fascinating, and I think it's great. What what this reminds me of is sort of you know golfers, uh, and 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 I actually was asked to write a chapter on golf. I'm not playing golf myself, but I thought it would be interesting just to kind of read what the very best golfers of the 20th century were were saying. And one of the things that I found was that they, when they were training, they were focusing in on, 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 on improving their control. So basically doing just the same thing in a simple environment wouldn't be basically the best way. So basically, you're actually deciding what you're going to do, which is different now from maybe on your driving range. You know, you do a couple of shots and then you decide to do something else. But basically, that idea here that what seems to be associated with the expert is that ability of actually control, you know, actually being able to modify what you're doing. And, and I know that some people feel that you really should be striving for automaticity. What I find in, in, in the interviews that I've made and, and in our research is that the experts, they seem to be able to kind of monitor all sorts of things. And if, especially if something bad happens, they're actually sort of ready to kind of adjust and, and, and address that perturbation. And, and that basically the skill, if you can actually control it in detail, you're also going to be able to react now to any kind of new changing conditions in a way that somebody who is more automated and relying on intuition uh, would not. So I might argue there that, at least in, in the world that I'm in, the surfing world, that the ability to react is going to be predicated on just experience in the water and timing. Because there are skills that you can teach on the beach. There are skills that you can teach in smaller surf, in, in benign conditions, that you don't have the same situational database uh, unless you've been through it and been through it for years. It takes years and years to develop that database of mental representations for situations. And I don't know if that's something, at least in a sport as dynamic as surfing, that you are able to to get through deliberate practice. I mean, and maybe tennis is the same way. I mean, there's there's the skills of being able to to hit shots correctly, but then there's also the skill set of being able to play a point uh, in a strategic way. Are, are those the same things? Well, I, I think they're really in some ways connected because if you're going to do something, you know, uh, you need to have some meta knowledge about your accuracy in doing it. So when you're making choices about what to do, say, in tennis, it's going to depend on, you know, your knowledge about your accuracy. 
And I think that's one of the things that I found very interesting and helpful in golf is that instead of actually doing one shot, you have the same person do 10 shots with exactly the same intention. And then you can actually see the variability that's being produced, even when you're actually intending to do exactly the same shot. And that's where we see big differences between the experts and the novices. The experts, they actually have much less variability in the outcome than the novices when they're actually trying to do exactly the same shot. And, and golf is an area where I, when I was thinking about this in the last few days preparing for our conversation, I was thinking about putting and golf. And there's the skill of knowing how to stroke the ball, but then there's also the, the ability to be able to read greens that you've never been on before. And the latter, it comes from just exposure, correct? Well, you know, basically what we found is that you can actually, if you have golfers think aloud when they're doing these tasks, you will find, you know, that they, especially when it comes to reading the green, uh, they often kind of transform that into finding a fixed point that they're actually aiming at so, and that's sort of derived now by their analysis of the green. And, and often you can see the golfer running around the green to kind of form, and I would argue, a mental image of the green. And then knowing, you know, what basically the conditions are of the green, now you have sort of the ability here of identifying what path you want. And then you can now transform that into selecting a fixed point that you can aim for with the appropriate power. And that's basically, so it's sort of a sequence of transformations. Now, I would argue that this is based on, on some work that uh, I, I did with a graduate student. And, and I would love to have people, you know, maybe showing me that this is not appropriate description for them. But what I do find is <clears throat> from reading the, you know, the golfers, the best golfers, that for them, it was a major realization, the sense here that they shouldn't really be looking to hold the putt. They should know what kind of circle or ellipsoid would actually describe the outcome that they actually could control. And if they were able to actually get it within that sort of circle of variability, then they should be happy because that's about as much as they can control. And, and that realization that you shouldn't be mad at yourself for not sinking the putt and more focus in on, are you doing what you know that you can do in practice? And, and here, here's another one where I'm going to ask you to maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, this is still on mental representations. And I, I look at mental representations as an evolution and as your skills progress, the type of representations that you use to model your skill or decision change uh, along with your skill. So when we start out, we focus on external representations. So focusing on Andre Agassi for a forehand, you break down his forehand um, or Kelly Slater for surfing and, and doing a turn. And, and that is what you're going out there with in your, in your mind as the ideal type of turn. And it, is, it might be an ideal type of turn, but it's lacking in its representation because it's external and you don't 
innately understand. You don't, you don't feel what is happening. But as you progress and you get closer to being able to do that, I, I, this is what I call the internal mental representation to where you are using the external but then building your own representation that's based more on feeling and uh, first-person knowledge um, of that. And then when you start to get quite good and you now are using only internal, maybe you model, maybe you see a new turn, you're like, I want to try that, but you can, you can almost feel what's happening ahead of time, that starts to move more into a creative, and maybe there's a better term for that, but a creative mental representation to where you can, I don't know if you want to call it visualize, but close your eyes and put yourself in situations that you haven't been in with some accuracy as to how that situation would go. Is that the normal process of mental representations that you see? Um, am I missing a step? Is there are there terms there that you no use? no? I, I think it's very interesting the way you describe it. I think what I find that I would possibly add that if you were to basically catch somebody after they you know completed a, a, a sort of a, a surf, and then ask them to see what they can actually remember or what happened while they were surfing. In many domains, what you find is that the experts, they're much more able to even remember details about what happened. And, and, and I guess it's sort of interesting to me when it comes to this idea of flow, that basically most of the time when people perform, they're actually having to make active adjustments uh, you know, to basically what they're doing. But on some occasions, it's almost like things are happening exactly the way you would have loved them to happen. And, and, and the argument is that when you have an experience like that, it almost feels like flow because now there's really nothing for you to kind of remember about the event. It just seemed like it was, you know, a perfect uh, sort of evolving uh, process that you didn't actively have to sort of influence. Right. And in surfing, um, I believe it was Red Bull who funded a study, had some scientists go out with surfers, and they found that surfers while riding waves had alpha brain waves that were equivalent or exceeding that of Buddhist monks in meditation. So you hit this very unconscious level of thought while surfing, and it, it's you can't – I've tried many times to hold a conscious thought, a line of thought while actually surfing a wave, and it's it's virtually impossible. And so you've, you're really relying on that – mental representation database to to handle all of your decision making for you and you are absolutely correct that you remember a wave as a state of flow like i can describe what it feels like to ride a wave or i can describe the maneuvers that i do on a wave in a technical way but the way that i feel that and i'm able to recall those memories is through i actually feel what it is what it feels like to ride that wave and that's difficult to to articulate there but you're, you're absolutely so, correct in that. So if, if, if one is basically asking the question, if we had a videotape of somebody completing you know, a, a surfing uh, event and then basically ask them to try to recall what happened on that particular surfing event immediately after, what kind of information would they be able to recall? Now, now that I don't know, and I would right. love to find out, uh, but my feeling is, that especially if something kind of did happen that was out of the ordinary, that seems to be the things that musicians remember 
mm-hmm. know, they made a slight mistake, you know, they did something too early or whatever. And the question is, would a very skilled surfer actually, when they've completed now a challenging surfing uh, situation, because obviously if, 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 if it's too simple, then, you know, there's m- much less than you basically haven't set the standards close to where you want to perform and, and the kind of performance that you probably would engage in if you're competing uh, or, or basically evaluating it against others. Yeah, absolutely. So I interviewed recently one of the world's best big wave surfers. He's uh, His name's Kai Lenny. And in the la- last year, one of the biggest seasons ever on the North Shore, 50, 60 feet waves, uh, he rode a few waves that were just outstanding in the regard of a massive 60 foot wave and he's taking off in wind and air dropping which is when your board actually disconnects from the water and you free fall 10 15 feet before connecting again with the wave and uh, i wanted to see in our conversation i wanted to see what was happening in his mind as that was going on because one of the things that i'm very interested in that anytime i talk to an expert about i always want to understand what they see that someone who may may be skilled but not them doesn't see in that same situation and so Kai walked us through everything that was going through his mind and as he was making that airdrop he was running scenarios scenarios were flashing through his mind um, I would say you know mental representations it's all unconscious at this point but of foot position where to land uh, how to set your bottom turn all in probably uh three quarters of a second, one second time frame, And so I think that ties directly into your work in that understanding because you talk to a beginner about surfing and they ride a wave and it's a train wreck. They can't tell you anything about what happened other than they rode a wave. Uh, and you've got someone at the top of their game being able to dissect down to the nth degree, actual do visualizations as you're falling on one of the most intense situations that a human can be in. So... Yeah, that that proves your point there for sure. Well, uh, this is just fascinating for me to have this discussion with you. And and one thing that I find and I would love if if there are surfers who also are very good at drawing and would they basically be able to sort of, you know, provide a kind of a visual description of the cues because that seems to be helpful when you're actually training people uh, to diagnose x-rays and other kind of medical images. And there you can actually see that the expert is actually noticing a lot more things because they can actually draw them. And given that you can actually now compare, present something, an actual x-ray, and then ask them to recall everything that they saw, that's sort of an externalization here of that they're what they were seeing when they were actually looking at that x-ray is fundamentally more elaborate and includes a lot more relationship and, and other kinds of things. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's an interesting question. If that really is the case, maybe there would be more effective ways of helping people, you know, develop these representations. Because if you actually have to experience it firsthand, so if you, for example, had a video, you know, from a firsthand point of view, would that actually be helpful to study basically those kinds of videos uh, in a way here of stopping it and now seeing whether 
you're actually able to make predictions here about the things that you need to be concerned about in order to maintain your control. I think I was I was able to experience Oculus um, while we were on this road trip back in the states a few months ago. The the virtual reality and it was I, I couldn't believe how realistic it was. And immediately I started thinking about coaching implications and exactly what you were saying there: mounting first person virtual reality 3D cameras on, say, a quarterback's head or uh, a surfer's head. And then as a student of whatever activity that is, just being able to run situations in a benign way that's not going to get you hurt. Situations that you would never be able to be in at your current level, but just, you know, be able to to, to, to increase your, I guess, the decision mental representation database through other people's experience, which is very difficult to do right now. I, I think that's such an important idea that you know, being able to do it safely. And, and I guess in medicine, they sort of emphasize the safety of the patients. But, you know, I, I guess in so many sports like surfing or or race car driving or whatever, you know, now you're looking at the safety of the driver and, and the individual who is actually engaging. And I think that's a fascinating thought. And, you know, only by doing it and now working with people who are at the very highest level, will you actually now be able to see whether they they actually can improve or, or what skill group this type of training would be the most beneficial for? Where does visualization come into deliberate practice? Can a doctor run visualizations for surgeries and have that be beneficial? Or are you limited by your own mental representations and the visualizations that you can run such that it doesn't really expand your knowledge? Well, I've talked to a lot of really outstanding surgeons, and that seems to be what they point to as the major difference from them compared to residents and other sort of more junior surgeons is that, you know, they can sit down for an hour and look at the medical imagery and now plan out what the surgery would look like. And in their planning, they will actually kind of, you know, come up with problematic situations and then they can, you know, with as much time as they need, work out, you know, what is it that we need to have available if this would be to happen? Or is there a different way that we can do this to actually avoid this potential problem? And, and then basically they videotape the surgery and then they can actually retrospectively sort of look into, was there something that happened that they didn't expect? And that they actually, based on the available imagery that was available to them before the surgery, that they could have anticipated. And that would be now a learning opportunity to kind of think, you know, how could have I changed the way I was thinking about this when I was planning it? So next time I will be prepared for this. And, and that cycle of constantly <clears throat> looking at what you plan to happen and the mismatch between what actually happened, I think is a really important feedback loop that you know can be pretty immediate you know, if you have the technical resources available. So that, that's fascinating because Kai Lenny, that big wave surfer, said the exact same thing. He says that he does visualizations, but he goes, I do visualizations, but not like people would think. He runs the worst case scenarios over and over and over in his head to prepare for whatever happens, uh, which sounds exactly like what those those doctors are doing. 
Fascinating. Is this something that you have recorded these interviews? Because it yep. sounds to me here, I would love to be able to uh, cite uh, basically your interviews because I think, you know, just seeing more examples here of experts and what they do, it's going to be really convincing to a lot of people who, you know, maybe are looking for easier ways to reach these very high levels of performance. Absolutely. Uh, I can send you, and I'll post it up in the show notes from this show as well, the Kai Lenny interview. It was on the previous podcast that I run concurrently, which is just about paddle surfing called Paddle Woo. And he was also on uh, the Finding Mastery podcast, which you also did, and his interview there is good as well. Uh, and he, he goes through on both shows some, some of these ideas. Um, all right, so how are you doing on time? We're scheduled for about an hour, um, but there's some other stuff I'd like to get into. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm a relatively flexible, but basically, if we could sort of aim for around an hour plus minus ten minutes, uh, okay, that would be perfect for me. So let's transition now into something else that I'm very passionate about, and uh, that is your work and Angela Duckworth's to Grit. If you haven't read Grit, you should read it. Um, in regards to uh, childhood development education. And so let me preface this by saying that through the last couple years that I've had of diving deep into deliberate practice, mastery, trying to understand the learning process, my wife and I decided to homeschool our children, Damien and Kemper, who are seven and nine years old, uh, just for a year. Maybe it'll continue, we're not sure, but as an experimental year to allow them to deeply pursue their passions using, you know, grit and deliberate practice, hopefully through that. And then, um, and, and, and I believe that in the world that we live in, it's such a dynamic changing world that those skill sets, the skill set of being able to say, this is my goal and it's going to be hard to do, but I know how to do it. These are the steps that I need to, to take to be able to become really good at something and then have the grit, the tenacity to stick with it. Uh, I think there's nothing that's more important than that in our world today. Um, wh- what do you think about that? What I just said there is that. Am I on the right track? Uh, I, I think you did a tremendous job, and I'm actually uh, collaborating uh, with Angela uh, on a project where we're interested in helping teachers basically improve their ability to help the students, and 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 I think. What I find the thing that seems to be missing in the K through 12 education is actually providing uh, students with that sort of experience of pursuing something in depth. Uh, Because my feeling is so much in K through 12, you're really not getting deeply into it. And you're also not getting that experience of working one-on-one with a teacher and basically that kind of gradual process by which you're improving. And I believe that that is really going to be a very important experience for somebody who graduates uh, after 12th grade when they're going to pursue a profession to kind of have an understanding here so they can make at least a choice that they basically want to pursue this. And here is some of the most effective variables that would allow them to keep improving whatever you know goal that they set and ideally, you know, they would be finding a teacher that could actually help them. And, and I think as 
people are more realizing here that they would like to have good, effective teachers, I think the teachers will emerge and and there will be more of a standard here where a teacher will actually be able to demonstrate how they've helped students basically improve. Because right now, it's more up to the individual student, especially the adult students, you know, to decide if they want to continue working with a teacher. But there's basically not that contract of, you know, if if you're basically doing what you're supposed to be doing, this is what happened to the 10 individuals that I've trained here at early, on earlier occasions. And basically that kind of idea here of that you have more control over what you're doing. Uh, one thing that I find that's really important is that sometimes parents try to have their children train more than they really are able to do effectively. Uh, and I think that's a problem because I think one really needs to respect sort of that limitation and that basically being really focused on something, maybe 15 to 20 minutes per day is about the right time where you actually are going to push yourself. If you ask somebody to do that for two, three hours when you're starting out, I think it's very likely that you end up with, you know, somebody who is pacing themselves. And instead of really being focused here on really trying to improve as much as possible, and then basically stopping when you actually can't sustain that level of concentration, I think that basically just leads you in an unproductive direction. So I think that that might go in directly into our where, where the conversation is going now, which is about passion. And I have always felt lost when I haven't had something that I'm very passionate about and then very just fired up, just just connected to life when I am. And I just, uh, Garrett Dutton, G love, who's a incredible blues musician was talking about learning to play guitar. And he started playing guitar when he was eight years old and he didn't love it and he didn't like it, but his mom made him practice every day. And then when he's 13, he got a new guitar and it sounded better. And it was like, okay, it's not so bad. But when he was 15, he wrote his first song and his relationship to music changed. And from that point forward, you couldn't pull the guitar out of his hands. And I've just seen this with, with our children too, to where my son, it's surfing and, and I am, I never pushed him into surfing. I, I would not take him until he asked me. And, you know, I was, I wished that he would have started surfing when he was four or five. He didn't like it. We never, you know, it was up to him to decide whether or not it was something that he wanted to do. And then this year he's decided that it's something that he wanted to do. And the beautiful part about that is that all the drive comes from him. And so he wakes me up at 5.30 in the morning. Can we go surfing? He wants to go surfing after school. He watches surf videos in the off time. So the ability to practice, focus, to focus on practice and, and, and motivation um, probably plays a large part in that. And I, I guess the question here is what happens when that switch flips and someone becomes incredibly passionate about something? What changes for someone like Garrett Dutton, the, the musician, or my kids, or, or me, when does that moment happen? Why does it happen? Well, I think this is really extremely exciting and, and interesting, and I don't know that we have enough, uh, basically, research on this yet. But what I've found on several occasions when I've basically looked and, and interviewed, uh, especially musicians, 
it seems that when you get to the point here where you develop representations, where you actually can play music that you enjoy listening to. I think the vast majority of students who play music, they're more like, or if they play the piano, like typists, you know, they know what keys to hit. But they actually, if you tell them to play it softer at various points, they really, you know, can't hear the difference. Now, when you get to the point here where you can actually play something where you're playing for your own pleasure as opposed to, you know, basically do put in your hours uh, monitored by your parent, then something happens. And, and I think what you're pointing to, you know, when you can actually create new music, that opens up gates of possibilities. And I think basically looking for those really motivationally, you know, exciting times where you can sit down at the piano and, and sort of explore to find new things. I found that when it comes to science, you know, that when you reach that point where you have representation so you can actually do something unique that is yours, that makes a huge difference. And it also, I think, allows you now to basically get recognition for yourself in a way that if you're just sort of able to mechanically reproduce technically difficult music pieces, there's basically nothing for you to really enjoy and actually see now how the training allows you to go beyond anything that you were able to do earlier. So anyway, that's how I view, and, and, and as you pointed out, the more you make the child or adolescent in control of the training, then they can make sure here that you don't push them to go beyond what they actually can productively do. And you also give them chances here of finding activities where they are actually doing it more for the exploration, the fun, and getting in contact now with the musical expression, which I think ends up being the really key for a musician. That ability of producing something that elicits in the audience an emotional reaction. And that obviously means that you need to be able to feel it yourself first. I think you touched there on one of the most important factors that I have seen outside of the fun of improvement is the validation. And uh, I think the pride that comes from having put in the hard work and then seeing your peer group respond to that hard work. Um, is there any research that goes into explaining what happens there and how that can help. I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but is, I mean, is there any stories there that can showcase that? Well, I, I guess I, I know here from talking to uh, parents of prodigies and stuff like that, what is interesting is that they are much more motivated when they have a public performance. And, and I think a lot of musicians, especially when they're doing really well, so you can actually have the sense here that you're moving a large group of people that kind of experience uh, and basically thinking back on it, you know, I think that is inherently very enjoyable. And, and, and I think you're, you know, basically being able to tell other people that you are a musician, you know, that creates some expectations and a lot of positive things. So once we start looking at, you know, those kind of positives that a very successful mastery of, of a domain uh, 
is associated with, then I think it becomes easier to see how this actually can feed and actually make you motivated to try to outdo what you were able to do on one occasion. And that kind of exploration of discovery, I think that's what I see in the people that, you know, I would argue are passionate. Um, switching gears a little bit here, uh, are there any assumptions that you hold today that you think that could possibly be flawed or any lines of thought that you have that you're, that you question a little bit in your research? You know, I, I guess I've always held the view here that science should be the best kind of knowledge base that would actually help people making informed decisions. And so that's the reason why when I looked at some evidence here, you know, arguing that they're genetic correlates and, and, and some people, you know, worried that, you know, that would sort of imply that some people really couldn't, even if they tried, achieve certain abilities. And I'm, I'm completely open to the possibility here that we would find these limits. But when I basically scrutinize this research, I find that it's very limited factors that we don't seem to be able to control. And, and so body size and height and stuff like that the length of bones seems to be a process that is determined you know, by the genes that you get from your parents. I think when we're looking for things that people can't do, what we're finding is that a lot of the things that adults seems to be having real difficulties doing can be related to developmental windows. So for example, being able to you know, learn how to have a perfect or absolute pitch seems to be something that any child can learn between ages three and five. But after age five, there may be something happening in the brain that makes this far more difficult or maybe even not possible. And the same thing, I guess, is with the joints, with the bones calcifying between nine and 12. If you are a baseball pitcher, you can actually change the joints so you actually will be able to move your arm much further back than people who are not training during that period. And that is something that's fixed. So if an adult is trying to acquire that ability when they're 18, they end up actually being more likely to have injuries because they're trying out to influence a process that is no longer open to training effects. Does that put a responsibility on parents then to so, – so, so let me go back a step here. I, I do believe that um, what you're saying, you can, you can focus and increase skill level to a very high level in almost anything that you put your mind to. And then also there are these physical limitations, height, if you want to be a center for basketball or gymnast – is it, is it irresponsible or should there be a responsibility on parents to help maybe guide their children into areas that they have the highest uh, potential for success in? Because, I mean, I know my daughter's going to be quite tall. And based on your work, it would be leading her possibly down a road, if she, if she wanted to be a gymnast, to, to reinforce and really have her aim high in the world of gymnastics, knowing that at some point her height is going to limit her her success and then set her up for some sort of setback there? Is, have you thought about that aspect of your work at all? 
Yeah, I, and I think that's kind of related a little bit to, you know, if you're a parent and, you know, basically if you're going to help uh, a child to actually develop some aspect or, or some uh, kind of performance in some domain, that's going to be a commitment on you, you know, basically helping out. So, so my feeling is looking for something that you would be personally interested in kind of helping would be an important consideration because if you're going to be helpful and actually do the supportive things and also be willing now to pay for instruction and, and other kinds of materials and travel to competitions and stuff like that, I think basically making kind of an informed decision here about what are the available options. And and then I think uh, what I see often is that there are ways in which a parent might provide now with some very enjoyable initial experiences. So it's almost like you can, you know, make it easier to get that initial excitement. And, and so it's not that idea that, that I think a lot of parents have, you know, we can't, you know, we should just wait to see here what their genetic gifts are. So we can't really influence it. My feeling is that once you take this view, that if you really are interested in giving them that experience of exploring something to a depth, and I think you don't really even have to make the plan here that they're going to be world class. But as you were pointing out previously, having had that experience of what it takes to reach mastery seems to have a really important effect in your adult career. I talked recently to several surgeons who basically told me that their experience in martial arts and other kinds of sports was really fundamental to them once they developed their skills in surgery, their awareness of what it is that you need to do and what it is that you can do if you're actually willing to invest in the right kind of training. So that's, I guess, my point of view. And again here, I'm hoping here that more people will be interested in these issues so we can, I think, just provide the scientific evidence that we currently have about what would be facilitating versus what are the things that uh, basically could be limiting factors if you're really interested in reaching the very highest levels. I've always identified as kind of a libertarian and so far as you're responsible for your own future. And I think that part of the reason why your work resonates uh, at such a high level with me is that it's very empowering. The, uh, the ability to say, this is what I want to do, and to even be able to change your chemistry or your uh, brain makeup um, to be able to achieve something just through hard work. If you look out, you know, if everyone really adopted this model, it, it could be interesting to see how, you know, thinking massive picture here, how the world would change a little bit by everybody believing that all they had to do was really work hard and they could achieve almost whatever they wanted. Do you think big picture about your research in that way? Well, I, I think that's really important to me, you know, to basically try to have a message, but also being clear about that it's not sort of an irrational belief here that you can do anything, uh, but more, if you can identify people who've been able to consistently reach a level that you want to aspire to reach, then there is knowledge that you can actually gain by finding teachers, or if there isn't any teachers in the domain, 
doing what you've been doing, actually interviewing and looking at the highest level performers to be able to sort of identify and extract information here that would facilitate. So when people want to be good at something, they don't have to start from scratch. They basically can now benefit from the accumulated uh, knowledge. And I think the more that people can actually look at the things that are beneficial to our society as a whole of how you can basically as a doctor, you know, improve the outcomes for your patients, or if you're a teacher, how you can actually, you know, get feedback and enjoyment from seeing your students succeed in a way that, you know, basically maybe going beyond what they were expecting. And I think there's a lot of aspects of our life where you actually are looking at the societal implications. And I think individuals who want to, you know, give people that experience of reaching depth, you know, they're now providing, helping that child, adolescent, you know, to get insights into what they can accomplish in this domain, and maybe also give them the confidence that they would be able to do something similar in whatever professional domain that they select. And that's something that I didn't, uh, that I didn't foresee going into this, to this study that I did. I, I did this starting, you know, four years ago, I guess, uh, because this was something that I was very passionate about and that I wanted to gain some level of mastery in. I didn't anticipate that I would have so much fun sharing it and by studying the deliberate practice method and everything else that I've been studying, be able to ramp up folks, um, growth curves to a level that was quite fun. I mean, I'm having a blast being able to share this with people. It's almost become what I'm studying now, right, is the way to share and teach and coach almost as much, if not more now than uh, the actual skill uh, acquisition. So I really credit you along with some other folks too, but uh, largely your work in Peak and uh, for that. So I'm greatly appreciative and I really appreciate your time today. Do you have anything that you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, that I really enjoyed talking to you and look forward to maybe sometime see you in person. Because uh, I think what you're doing is such a nice demonstration here of, of the value and power of, of some of these ideas. Well, so we, I live in Costa Rica. This is where we run our training, and, and you have an open invitation to come down uh, and be a part of one of, our, one of our weeks at some point if you'd like to. So just let me know. Okay. Well, let's stay in touch. Awesome. Anders, thank you very much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. I also enjoyed it so much. Thank you. The Progressive Project.